All right, for our scripture reading, we turn to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. It's right in the middle of the Gideon story. Judges chapter 7. I'll read the whole chapter. Judges chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance." When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch 
when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew their trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshetah toward Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and capture the waters against them, as far as Bethbarah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Bethbarah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb on the rock, at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Throughout Scripture, we see that time and time again, God uses the most unexpected means to accomplish his glorious ends. Think about how God created the world. He simply speaks, and the universe is thrown into existence. How does God create man? But what does he use? He uses dirt. How does he make a woman? He, make, he uses a rib. When God is delivering the entire nation of the Hebrews from the Egyptians, what does he use? He uses that little baby floating in a basket down the Nile River to deliver the entire nation. We see him using men marching around Jericho, blowing trumpets and shouting, and the walls of Jericho fall down. We see him using a sheep boy to kill the greatest warrior of the Philistines with a slingshot. And we see a man that came out of a giant fish with a tiny sermon bringing an entire city to repentance. So why is it that God uses unlikely means, seemingly impossible means, to accomplish his glorious ends? Well, it is so that all the glory will go to him and not to the means which he employs, that no one is confused and think that um, Moses gets the credit or David gets the credit. No, it's so that all the glory goes to him. It's so that the one who boasts will boast in the Lord. Today we come to a prime example of God using the most unexpected means to accomplish his glorious ends. 300 people smashing jars, shouting, making a racket, leading to the defeat of 135,000 people. Today we see God doing the impossible. And as we approach this story, let's keep in mind the biblical principle that all the glory is due to God, not to the means that God employs. Our three points today will be, first, unlikely odds, second, unexpected assurance, and third, undeserved victory. Unlikely odds, unexpected assurance, and un deserved victory. So first, un unlikely odds. For some context, the book of Judges takes place after Joshua has brought the people of Israel into the promised land. And a new generation rises up that did not know the Lord. They did not know the Lord. 
and they fall into idolatry. They fall into the uh, worship of the idols of the surrounding pagan nations. And what happens after that is that God would raise up a nation to oppress them in judgment, in discipline. The people would cry out to God, and God would send them a deliverer and rescue them, and there would be a time of rest, only to be interrupted by them falling back into that same toxic cycle of idolatry, judgment, deliverance, and idolatry again. Judges is a book that teaches us about our need for Jesus Christ. It teaches us that these judges are actually insufficient, that there is no king in Israel, and that ultimately a king is needed, and that king is Jesus Christ. It's even the kings that would come after could not ultimately deliver the people of God. Today we zoom in to the Gideon cycle, the Gideon cycle of the book of Judges. We meet Gideon as a fearful man hiding from the Midianites in chapter 6. Right, He's hiding um, and crushing his grain in a wine press somewhere that's unexpected uh, so th to hide it from the Midianites. It says in chapter 6 that the oppression was so bad that the people of Israel were hiding in caves, dens of the rocks, um, from the Midianites. And my uh, grandma, she was a little girl when Malaysia was occupied by the Japanese. Her grandfather owned a tin mine in Malaysia, and throughout part of the Japanese occupation, they lived inside the tin mine to hide from the Japanese. When we read chapter 6, See, that things are even worse than that. Things have gotten out of control, and the people are in desperate need of deliverance. And God is about to have mercy on his people and deliver them. So Gideon was a fearful man, and God starts off by preparing the individual for deliverance. He encourages him. He encourages Gideon in the midst of his fears. Uh, he promises that he will be with Gideon. After preparing the individual for deliverance, he prepares the family for deliverance. He sends Gideon to destroy the idols of his father, of his father's household. After that, God starts preparing the nation for deliverance. And Gideon is almost like a spiritual Paul Revere and just rallies all these people that are ready to rise up against their oppressors. And that's where we find ourselves today in chapter 7. The people have risen up. 32,000 Israelites have gathered themselves ready to fight against the Midianites. But there's a problem. There's a problem. The Midianites have 135,000. So 32,000 and 135,000. The odds are 4 to 1. And it says in verse 12 that the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. The odds are four to one. The odds are already unlikely. And it would have been terrifying. Imagine you're Gideon. And your enemy has four times as many people. What would you want? What would you be praying for the night before the battle? I, I would be praying that God would raise up more people from other tribes of Israel. That God would bring reinforcements so that we could have a chance. But to God's shock, sorry, to Gideon's shock, God says to Gideon that he has too many people. Too many people. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. But what's the reason why? Well, it's lest Israel boast over me, saying, 
My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. The odds are now 13 and a half to 1 instead of 4 to 1. It's like you're already the worst basketball team in the league, and you're up against the best in the league. Everyone already thinks you're going to lose, and then the coach kicks out everybody except five people. According to, from a human perspective, this is insane. This doesn't make any sense. But the reasoning is so that Israel will not boast when they get the victory. It's so that they do not say, my own hand has saved me. He doesn't want them to think that somehow they still managed to pull it off on their own. Maybe they still would have taken credit for it. So God makes the odds so unlikely that no one can take credit for their salvation from the Midianites. And all the glory would go to him alone. And when it comes to our own salvation, our own testimonies of God's deliverance in our own lives, we cannot say even 1% that our own hands have saved us. The triune God does 100% of the work in salvation. The Father does all the work in predestining sinners, in choosing us to be saved. He doesn't look down the corridor of history and say that you would make a great Christian, you know, you would be a good pastor, you would use your free will to choose me, so I'm going to elect these people. That's not how it works. God chooses sinners. God chooses us. Um, he chooses the foolish and weak things in the world. Right? It's not based on what we're going to do. It's based on His choice, not ours. And the Son does all the work, taking on a human nature, living a perfect life for us. His righteousness gets us into heaven, paying for all of our sin, for us. Christ does it all. It's his works that gets us into heaven, and he is therefore entitled to all the glory, not us. And it's also the Holy Spirit doing all the work and causing us to be born again, giving us the gift of faith. Why do you believe in Jesus Christ? Why is it? Is it because you examined all the evidence and you did a great job in researching? Or is it because you made a choice that you were going to become a Christian? Ultimately, the reason why you believe, the reason why anyone believes, is that God has had mercy on them and the Holy Spirit has softened the heart of stone. That's the only reason we can believe in Jesus, right? We're saved by faith alone. We can't boast in our own works. But even the faith itself is a gift. Therefore, God gets all the glory. God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And to ensure that no one would boast in the presence of God, even though the odds were already 13 and a half to 1, God says to Gideon in verse 4, the people are still too many. And he was about to make his army a lot smaller. This probably would terrify Gideon beyond measure. Verse 5, 
So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With three hundred men who lapped, I'll save you, and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go every man to his home. Gideon retains... 300 men. The 300 stuck their heads towards the water and laughed like dogs, while others kneeled down and scooped water up. The 300 were getting their faces closer to the water than the other group. Now, when I was in Sunday school, and when I've heard about this text in the past, it was always presented to me that one group had more vigilance than the other group, or maybe one group had more faith and that they were willing to put their head towards the water. We can get caught up thinking about the differences between the two groups, but the text doesn't actually say what the difference is between the two groups in a spiritual sense. At the end of the day, this was not some elite, unbeatable group. The point is not how great the 300 men are, how great of warriors they are. They're not like King Leonidas's 300 soldiers or the SEAL Team 6 of Israel. The point is that they cannot boast. He's doing it so they can't get any credit. It's not because they're so great. He's not making the army better. He's making it worse. This is probably just an arbitrary way of lessening the amount of people there. Saying, like, all right, if you have a, you know, if anyone's wearing a green shirt, shirt and they have an Apple Watch, okay, you guys are going to go fight. It seems arbitrary. Uh, but we can sympathize that when this happened, this terrified Gideon. The odds are now 450 to 1, and it has become impossible. And here in this place, God gives Gideon even more assurance. Our second point, unexpected assurance. Verse 9, That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hand shall be strengthened. So God sends them to go and eavesdrop on the Midianites to give Gideon assurance. God doesn't owe Gideon signs, right? God, but God is still free to give signs if he wants to, to people in the word. Think of Thomas. He says he's not going to believe unless he touches his hands, you know. And God doesn't owe Gideon signs. And yet he's still graciously meets Gideon where he's at. It still graciously comforts him and gives him the assurance he needs. Verse 13, Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So, while Gideon was terrified of the Midianites, he goes and he eavesdrops on them, and he finds out that the Midians are terrified of him. In this dream, they see a cake of barley bread rolling down and knocking over a tent. It should sound ridiculous. It should sound absurd. 
a cake, knocking down a tent, defeating their army. This is like a bagel rolls down the street and knocks your house down. This is insane. This is unbelievable. This is the most unlikely thing possible to doom them. And the barley bread symbolizes Gideon, Gideon's attack. The most unexpected, pathetic thing, devastating the enemies of God. It is, and this is comforting to Gideon. They're terrified. They know they are doomed. And through this, God gives Gideon the assurance, the boldness, and the hope that he needs, knowing that God is able and about to do the impossible. Verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. He's filled with boldness. He's no longer the fearful man we met in chapter 6. And that hope throws him into the battle. It says, And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the hosts of Midian into your hand. Gideon's assured hope of certain victory strengthened him, emboldened him to go and fight. And so our hope, our certain hope, of God's power to use weak means should embolden us. If you've tried to share the gospel in the Christian life with those that do not know Jesus Christ, then you probably know the feeling of just immediate awkwardness, cringiness that can come up. Maybe there's certain family members that you are scared to bring up the gospel to, bring up the things of God to, and if it comes up, you know, you know they're going to get so angry. You know they're going to get upset when really you're just trying to love them. You really just want them to know Jesus Christ. You want them to, you want them to be in heaven with you, right? You're not doing some hateful thing. You, you care about them. And yet, immediate tension, immediate awkwardness. Maybe getting your hair cut and you're taking a risk and you bring up the gospel. And all of a sudden, things get awkward and you're worried about their scissors next to your head, Right? If you've been sharing the gospel, you know what this is like. Sometimes it can feel like, I can feel like, what, why even do this? It's easier to just fit in. It's easier to just be a normal, respectable person and not look like a nutcase. But, and you know what, it honestly sometimes feels like preaching the gospel is foolishness. I think we all know what it feels like. Feel sometimes that preaching the gospel is foolishness. But what we see here in this passage reminds us that God loves, God has chosen, God delights, and is glorified to use the most pathetic means to accomplish his glorious ends. And as we learn in 1 Corinthians, it pleased God to use the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. God loves to use the foolishness of preaching to save those he believes. As Spurgeon says, the preaching of the gospel is the ram's horn that brings down Jericho. Not religious wars, not emotional manipulation, not pragmatic means, not syncretizing with other people's religions, not sacramentalism, not even with eloquent, wise-sounding words, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. But the foolishness of preaching is what God has been pleased to use to save billions of lost souls. Do we actually believe this? Do we believe that the gospel is the power of God 
unto salvation. If we don't believe this, you know, we will honestly just be ashamed of it. If we don't believe this, we'll just not share it. We'll not take those risks, those risks of awkwardness, those sacrifices for the sake of lost souls. But if we do, if we seek that assured hope of the promises of God from the Holy Spirit, then we'll be filled with that hope, that boldness that we need to charge into the battle like Gideon does here. Which leads us to our third point, undeserved victory. Undeserved victory. Gideon divides the 300 men into three groups of 100. He gives them jars with burning lamps on the inside and gives them trumpets. They're basically about to cause a racket in the middle of the night, and it'll look like they have the, terrifi- they have the, um, the terrified Midianites surrounded. We already know they're terrified. Verse 19, So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set watch. They blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. In the darkness and the chaos, the soldiers accidentally start killing each other. How did this work? How could it be that these 300 soldiers, smashing jars, blowing trumpets, led to the defeat of the massive army? It's all because of God alone. It's all because of God alone. This tactic should not have worked. Gideon's troops experienced victory, but the text emphasizes that they didn't even do any fighting. As it says in, if you look at verse 21 with me, verse 21 says, Every man stood in his place around the camp. Right? They have the trumpet, they have the lamp, right? They're not even, they're not holding swords. They're just standing. They stood still and watched the salvation of the Lord as God defeated their enemies and did all the work in their salvation. Therefore, God gets all the glory. The overwhelming success is ascribable to God alone, and now Gideon's boldness continues. Verse 23 to 25, he rallies many more Israelites to join the fight. He calls in Ephraim to cut off their escape route, and two of the Midianite princes are killed. Hebrews 11 says, Gideon has been made strong out of weakness. He has put foreign armies to flight. And this is all the power of Christ working in his life being patient with him, growing him, using the unexpected means of a weak man, a terrified man who is afraid so many times from chapter 6 to the end of chapter 8, messes up so many times, is a flawed man, as all the judges were, to deliver his people and then to continue devastating them until the end of chapter 8. In conclusion, God delights to use the most unexpected, shocking, outwardly weak and pathetic means to gain massive victories. 
to save his people and to show that all the glory goes to him. We see this most clearly with the cross. We see this with the humiliation of Jesus Christ coming into this world, looking pathetic, right? According to the flesh, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The text says that he had no beauty we should desire him. One of my professors says that he, wasn't, he didn't walk around with a halo around his head. right? He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How could this naked, bleeding, dying man save us from the wrath we deserve? defeating all of our enemies of sin, death, the devil, guaranteeing our eternal salvation. 2 Corinthians says he was crucified in weakness. The cross outwardly looked weak. It looked pathetic. It looked impossible. And it looked like the most disappointing, anticlimactic failure through the eyes of the flesh. But in reality, God was, was gaining the most glorious victory imaginable and doomed the enemies of the devil and his forces. God saved the world through this. And it is amazing. Jesus did all the work. Jesus gets all the credit. And therefore, none of us can boast in anything but him. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Let's pray. Almighty God, most merciful Father, we thank you for saving our souls. We thank you for delivering us from our enemies, that we may serve you without fear. We pray, Lord, that we would not grow weary in doing good, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, that you would strengthen all the weak knees, that you would help us to run with endurance the race that is set before us, that you would help us be bold in sharing the gospel, that although outwardly it may look nuts, it may look foolish, we know you are pleased to use the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Lord, would you do a mighty work in the community here? Would you save many lost souls through our witness here. And would you get all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.